KMTT. Kimitzion Tetzay Torah. And this is Ezra Beck. Today is Bet Shvat. Today's Shiur will be the fifth installment in the series on major issues in medieval Jewish philosophy. The Shiur is 31 minutes long and will be followed by a Chayomit. Today's topic that I wish to talk about is the topic of Hashkacha, which is normally translated as providence, divine providence. Before we even begin, I'd like to point out there's a certain ambiguity in the use of the term in, in the Middle Ages and in Jewish philosophy in general, one which is really, really defined. The word lahashkiach in Hebrew would mean to, to, to watch over. It has a certain implication. Somebody's watching over me. It seems to imply that he's watching over me in order to protect me for my benefit. He's taking care of me. And very often when we speak of hashkacha, that's in fact what we mean. We mean that, that God is taking care, at least of people, of human beings, perhaps of Jews. But, but hashkacha fatit means like a babysitter, like someone who's a caretaker, is someone who's mashkiach. On the other hand, the word philosophically very often means simply responsibility. In most of the chapter, chapter 17 in the third chedek of the Moren of Uchim, which we will be discussing today, that's what the Rama means by Hashkacha, sometimes very, very explicitly. Uh, for instance, throughout the chapter, you have the example of what happens to evil people. Evil people are punished by God. That's Hashkacha. It's not Hashkacha for the Tzaddik, it's Hashkacha for the Rasha, because God is punishing them through His direct involvement in their lives. So there, Hashkacha doesn't mean that He's watching over them, or at least not in the, not in the benevolent sense. It means that everything that happens happens because God wills it to happen. There's not only an ambiguity here, there's a certain contradiction between, between the two terms. Is it merely a metaphysical statement about the relationship of nature to God? Or is it a statement that has something to do with the religious virtue called bitachon? One should have one's trust in God because God basically cares about us and wants our well-being, and, and has the power and the desire to, in fact, take care of us. We're going to see a certain amount of that tension in the Bama's discussion and in other discussions, but as I pointed out, it's rarely made explicit in the Middle Ages, and one has to be careful, since to list our own minds, there's quite a clear distinction between the two senses of the word, we have to be careful what we mean in any given discussion. Our discussion today will, will center on the Perak Yudzayin, the 17th chapter of the third Chelek of Mimen Ruchim, which is the chapter that the Rambam discusses Hashkacha. He begins by saying there are five theories of Hashkacha. The first theory, which we won't elaborate on, is that there is no Hashkacha. So that's not a, not a normal theory of Hashkacha. The first one is that there's no Hashkacha, and the Rambam mentions the name of Epicurus, he whose name became synonymous with Apikosut. What was the Apikosut of Epicurus, at least according to the Rambam? Uh, Epicurus thought there was no Hashkacha. In terms of the history of Greek philosophy, from which the Rambam derives his knowledge, which is Aristotle's book on metaphysics, uh, Epicurus had the theory that the world consists of atoms, which are moving through space, and every now and then an atom simply swerves to the right or to the left. No reason. For Aristotle, 
and for modern science and for the Rambam, that's really apicosit. Everything that happens has to have a cause. Apicosit said, no, sometimes things just happen. There is a phenomenon called pure chance, pure accident. No cause, no explanation can be given. When the Rambam says that Epicurus didn't believe in Hashkacha, that's what he means. He means that some things happen and nothing is responsible for it. Nothing ultimate. Nothing which you might call God or, or by any other name. Okay, so that's the first theory. We can place it on the side. Surprisingly, the second theory is one that there is Hashkacha. And that theory of Hashkacha is Aristotle. Anyone who knows anything about Aristotle and Judaism would normally assume that uh, Aristotle did not believe in Hashkacha at all. God doesn't know what's going on in the world, he's not concerned about the world, and he doesn't do any actions within the world. What does the Rambam mean when he says that Aristotle believes in Hashkacha? The answer is a typical Rambam answer. According to Aristotle, everything that takes place in the world takes place because of the laws of nature. The laws of nature are a reflection, are an embodiment of ultimate wisdom, which in the Rambam's language means the wisdom of God. Every time we read the Rambam about, about nature, we have to remember not to read it in our own, in our own mindset, in our own, lang- in our own language. For us, laws of nature, for all modern science, laws of nature are simply things which work. There's nothing logical about them. Gravity says that two objects attract each other. If there would be a universal phenomenon that two objects uh, um, repel each other, that would also be a law of nature. No scientist attempts to explain the rationality involved in the fact that, 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 that gravity works or that electromagnetism follows certain laws. But for Aristotle and for the Rambam, the laws of nature were laws of wisdom. They were basically logically true. And for Aristotle, they were logically true and that said all that needs to be said about them. And for the Rambam, they were wisdom which God, because God is committed to wisdom, imposed upon the world. So therefore, when Aristotle said that everything takes place according to the laws of nature, for the Rambam, that's a kind of hashkacha, meaning that things don't take place in abandonment, they don't take place haphazardly, they take place because something is watching over them, and what's watching over them is the laws of nature. And the Rambam has a religious nature, a religious uh, 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 character to the laws of nature. The laws of nature are the wisdom of God. The Rambam immediately admits that this kind of hashkacha is hashkacha kilalit, not hashkacha pratit. It's general hashkacha. It makes no difference which particular ant you are. All ants follow the laws of ants. Trees follow the laws of trees. Wind will, will knock down leaves. There is no hashkacha pratit for the individual within the species, but for the species as a whole, all, all things which exist, all, all, all categories, all universals to use the, the, philosophic, the Greek philosophical term, follows certain rules. Those rules are, among other things, and here we do have an embodiment of the higher, more benevolent sense of Hashkacha. All the rules of nature are designed to maintain nature, to maintain the existence of nature. There's a rule of nature that says there's food for, for animals. Animals have teeth so they can eat. That's Hashkacha Klalit. Hashkacha Khalit for the lions gives them the digestive system which can digest the meat which they are going to eat. Any individual lion might starve to death. But lions as a species have been granted, so to speak, 
we who are theists would say, granted by a benevolent God, Aristotle, or even the Raman's version of Aristotle, would say, the wisdom of God has been expressed in the world in such a way that every species has the means of its existence, and basically the world works. The rules, the laws of nature don't destroy the world, they don't take the world apart, they maintain the world as we, as we know it. So that's Ashkach HaKlamit. Okay, what really interests us is the final three opinions in the Rambam, all of which are religious opinions, opinions held by, by monotheists, and frankly, they're opinions which are held by Jews, although the Rambam does not ascribe them necessarily to Jews. And the third opinion is very, very interesting. The Rambam says this is the opinion of the Asharia. The Asharia is basically what orthodox, the orthodox philosophy of Islam. And the Asharia answers the question, why do things happen? And says, yes, there is a reason. There is Hashkacha. And the Hashkacha is the will of God. No further answer can or should be given. Notice here we basically moved on to a question, not whether there is Hashkacha, but what is the principle which underlies Hashkacha. And that's really the important question for the Rambam in order to under, for, us, for us to understand. Anything that takes place the Asharia says it took place because of the will of God. On the one hand, there is a certain extremism involved here. Everything that takes place, the leaf that falls in the desert and the, the ant that was stepped by, on by the elephant in the jungle and the ice that cracks in the, in the Arctic is because God said it should happen at the time. No universal laws of nature involved here, but God wills that that should take place. On the other hand, if you ask, but why does God will that that should take place? The answer is, because that is His will. In Islam in general, at least in Orthodox Islam, there was an extreme emphasis on the unity and sovereignty of God. And in one of the most famous passages in Platonic Dialogues, uh, Plato has Socrates asking whether the things which God or in the Greek language, the gods, which they will, is it because those things are good, or are they good because the gods will them? And for a monotheist, for an extreme monotheist, like an adherent of Islam, you cannot answer that God makes certain rules or wills certain things because they are good, because then you're saying that there's something outside of God called the good, which, first of all, exists and is supreme, so there are basically two two supreme, two transcendental uh, existing things. And two, you basically say that God is subject and subservient to the second one. And therefore, in Islam, the answer to why God says A, B, or C, or why God does A, B, or C, is because that's His will. And we cannot apply any rules to God's, to God's will. As the Raman points out immediately in the chapter, uh, in in Orthodox Islam, in the Asharia, there is no answer, but no need to answer, the most basic question of religious theology, namely the problem of evil. Why is there evil in the world if God is good? The answer of the Asharia is, there is evil in the world because God wills that there should be evil in the world. In other words, you can't say, well, God is good and this is bad and that's a contradiction. Whatever God wants is good. Luckily for us, or in any event, if it's lucky or not, but luckily for us, God said you shall not kill. But if He said you should kill, we would kill. Because God's will is law. 
and there are no questions and no standards to God's will. The Rambam considers this to be absurd. I'm emphasizing that because I suspect that there are many Jews who basically, basically, at least when they want to be philosophic, accept that. I think it's impossible for a Jew to accept it. The Torah is, is replete with the understanding that we don't merely do God's will, but that God's will is good. Starting already in Beshit, one of Avinu says to God, He holds God up to a standard which both he and God are presumed to share. As well as, as many other halachot, God is not good because we've defined the word good to be what God's will is. God really is, really is good. Including the ability of God to give you a command then to be good without Him telling you what to do. You should do that which is good and, and correct and righteous. And how do you know that? The Ramban points out, God is not going to tell us. It's too complicated. It's too detailed. There's a limit to what He can tell you, but He can tell you just to be good because you know what it means. It's, it's the value. It's the ultimate value which God represents. As part of a defense, sometimes I don't think we have the, the 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 Islamic problems here. But as part of a defense against this question or that question, Jews sometimes retreat to saying, "Well, it's God's will." For instance, if somebody asks, "How do you justify the morality of mitzvat mechiyat Amalek? God commanded us to kill every Amalekite, man, woman, and child. We feel a certain amount of moral uh, uh, uncomfortableness with this mitzvah. So I think the classic Jewish answer is to fight, is to try to explain it. But the answer of Islam is you don't have to explain it. If God said it, then it's okay. Not just okay, it's a, it's a mitzvah, it's right. And I think I've heard Jews sort of retreat to this. You know, we, not, not that we don't have the right to question God. There's nothing to question. There's a slight but in very important philosophic difference between saying, if God said it, then I, in my modesty, in my lack of knowledge, in my ignorance, accept that God's will is correct. To saying there is nothing to be ignorant about. I'm not being modest when I say that if God says it, it's correct. It's defined as being correct. There is no problem whatsoever. And I think Jewish history and Jewish philosophy has always grappled with a problem. We haven't been necessarily very good at finding answers to the problem of theodicy, of justifying God's way in the world, the problem of evil. But we know there's a problem. Eov is about a problem, say for Eov. It's not about a, a mistake. It's not about an illusion of a problem because you're being overly, overly uh, proud of your own intellectual prowess. Yimiyahu Hanavi said to God, Lama derech l'shaim tzalecha? Why do the, right, why do the evil uh, doers prosper? And it was a problem. So the Rambam simply rejects. He rejects out of hand uh, this opinion. He, he treats it relatively at length. He says, anytime you ask them a question, They'll say, it's God's will. Why does this child die and this child not die? Because it's God's will. There's a, uh, a, a, the, the influence of Islam on Islamic cultures is very, very deep in precisely this point. This has been noted by, uh, by many writers. There's a certain fatalism. Sometimes it's called fatalism of the East, but it basically means fatalism of the Islamic East. It says that uh, what's going to be is what's going to be. In Arabic, it's called Kullam in Allah. Everything is from God. And if you've achieved true uh, uh, sublimating of your own desires before God, then you're not troubled by anything because everything comes from God. And once it's happened, we call that Siddur Kadin. Siddur Kadin is not the same. As someone once pointed out, uh, the Gemara says, 
כשם שמברכים על הטוב, כך מברכים על הרעה, just like one makes a bracha on good, one makes a bracha on bad, but as was pointed out, you don't make the same bracha. You say a tov ha-metiv on good, you say dayan ha-emet on bad. There is a certain feeling, which I've heard from, from, uh, from uh, Arabs, not necessarily theologians. In the end, in the end, it's all, it's all the same. There's a, 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 there are moral repercussions of such a theory. If everything is all the same, whatever God wills is what is. And whatever God wants is the good. That frees us, on the one hand, from the necessity of moral struggle with the world about us, it's in God's hands, or understanding God's commands, because He commanded, we accept it. On the other hand, it also frees us from moral responsibility. You don't actually have to change the world unless you think God commanded you at this particular moment to do something. But the fact that the world is miserable, the fact that there's misery in the world, we have a fairly good explanation for that. Kulla minallah. And there isn't really, not that there isn't much you can do about it, there isn't any reason why you should do anything about it. Because if it's God's will, then it's what should and must and must be. So the Rambam mentions this as a theory of Hashkacha Pratit. It's very Pratit. It's very particular and individual. The metaphysics behind it might claim that nothing could happen unless it was God's will. But it is so inclusive, so dominated and so centered on God's will that it doesn't leave room for anything else, specifically for any moral, moral value. And the next two opinions that the Raman brings down, the fourth and the fifth opinion, theory of Hashkacha, both uh, proclaim, both propose that there is Hashkacha Paratit, but the principle of Hashkacha Paratit is one of two things, either Mishpat or Chokhmah. The difference is not obvious, and we're not going to go into, to, go into it today. I wish today to merely emphasize the difference between both four and five, the latter two dayot, and the previous, and the third, and the third, the third opinion. The third opinion, the Raman calls Ashavir. The fourth opinion, he calls Kalam. You remember this word from last week. Uh, and once again, he is referring, among others, to Rav Sajigan. And the fifth opinion, he says, is the Da'at Torateinu Akdoshah, with his own particular version of it, he distinguished between the general version, his own particular version, but it's all subsumed under the under the fifth under the fifth uh, theory of of hashkacha. Hashkacha, which is based on mishpat, says, and this is what we are basically familiar with: everything that takes place, at least to people and perhaps to others as well, is because of God's will. But God's will is an expression of justice. This, of course, is a problem. This means that you must have tzaddik v'tov lo rasha v'ralo. The righteous should prosper and be rewarded, and the evil should be punished. Because if the righteous suffer and the evil prosper, then that's not justice. If everything is God's will, there's no problem. But if everything is God's justice, then the world apparently does not reflect that. And that's a problem. And in fact, it is a problem. That is the problem called the problem of evil, and we will eventually discuss different Jewish approaches to it. But perhaps, in, in what might strike one as an illogical approach, the fact that this theory creates the ground for the problem of evil is in fact its major uh, benefit. Because it's clear to the Rambam 
that we don't wash away the problem of evil. As I pointed out, Sefer Eov, the Yemiyah Navi, discussions in the Gemara, discussions throughout the ages, the problem of evil is in fact a real problem and to be a true believer in God's ways in the world means that you have to grapple with the problem and not, and not wash it away. So justice, or in the Ramam's version, wisdom, but wisdom includes justice. Wisdom means to do that which is right at all times. Uh, justice demands that God, in fact, meet out to everyone, to everything, that which it deserves. And you therefore must answer the question of the problem of evil. And everything can be explained in that way. Obviously, what, 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 what results from this is a certain demand for emunah bitachon. Even if we have a theory which will explain the problem of evil, but clearly the world doesn't support this kind of view. If you have enough faith, a tremendous amount of faith, you can believe in God's justice in the world despite the apparent evidence to the contrary. Despite the fact that that, that little children die unnecessarily and, and there are earthquakes and, and various terrible things happen even though the people are apparently uh, at least righteous or in any event not, not, uh, not terribly evil. And on the other hand, there are terribly evil people who prosper and, 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 and go to their graves ha- ha- happy. So you might have an answer and we will discuss the answers eventually but, but in order to believe in that you have to say, well, I believe in it despite the fact that the world doesn't appear, uh, doesn't appear to support it. The well-known, the well-known line of Voltaire in his uh, in the story of Candide, where Voltaire was making fun of of this kind of belief. So the philosopher in that story, Pangloss, says all the time, no matter what happens, all is for the best in the best of all possible worlds. I'm not saying that's the Jewish attitude. It's not the Jewish attitude, but the point is, Candide uh, is based on Voltaire trying to show how a person can be in the middle of the earthquake, the great earthquake of Lisbon. He can be struck down by disease. People are dying left and right. But he has this joke in his head. He has this belief in his head that says the best is, the, uh, all is for the best, the best of all possible worlds. So it, it can be taken to extremes. But surely the opposite cannot be true. It's not really possible to look at the world and say, ah, I see all the time, without exception, God's, God's justice. And the whole theory is based on that there is no exception. It's based on the fact that this is the way Hashkacha works, not that sometimes God does justice. The theory says that Hashkacha is justice, or is wisdom, and therefore any exception is a question, and not merely a, 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 uh, a little bit of a variation on an original, on an original theme. In, I'm, I'm going to leave the Rambam's own, uh, own attitude towards Hashkacha for next week, uh, I would like to conclude with a, a point that the Rambam makes concerning uh, Rav Sajigon's opinion, the fourth theory in Ashkacha, which indeed will, will strike one as being, as being strange. In the Kalam and in Rav Sajigon, no distinction is made between humans and the rest of the world. If the world is run on the basis of justice, then justice has to apply to everything. And some people were bothered by the injustice in the non-human world. I mean, ants are crushed by the millions. So one answer for the injustice in the human world 
was based on Olam Haba, on the future world. The Moral Calculus is, is not simple. Again, we'll talk about this when we talk about the Pama Vivo. But the Calculus says that you might suffer more than is your due in this world, but the next world will make it up to you. So that in the larger picture, you do not suffer unnecessarily. You do not suffer more than was your due, more than justice demanded. But if that's going to be true for animals, then it has to be a world to come for animals. The Bible thought this was funny. He, he, he doesn't even criticize. He just says, you know, look at this absurd conclusion that they had to reach. Conclusion he thinks that his theory will be uh, absolved from having, from having to reach. I'm not so much interested in the, this basically a curiosity of a world to come for cats. But what is important is, is the calculus involved. Because what the fourth opinion claimed was that God could, in advance, God could, l'chatchila, he could afflict a person and then pay him back in the next world. Pay him back double, perhaps, in the next world. So that everything is, 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 is okay. And the reason why they had to say this is, again, because of the, the, the centrality, the, 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 the monopoly that justice has on God's ways. It doesn't leave room for shadings. It doesn't leave room for complexity. So that any single case, once, if, if anything happens, if, if it rains on the wrong person, it, it has to be just. It can't be unjust, but there's some other explanation. It has to be just. And therefore, they came up with a theory which I think, morally, I find very, very difficult. I don't, I don't understand how it could even be suggested. That says that justice not only allows, but justice could, could require God to afflict the basically a righteous person, the undeserving, the undeserving of affliction. And then, 10, 20 years later, give him a greater share in Olam Haba, and therefore the whole thing is just. If we would say this about people, I think it would be scandalous. I can hit you as long as I pay you back double tomorrow. In fact, there's a Isud Yoraita to do such a thing. Uh, the Rambam, uh, it's the Rambam of course, but the Rambam uh, quotes in Elchot Geneva that someone who steals with the condition, the assumed condition in his head that he'll pay back, he'll pay back double. According to the halacha, if you, if you burgle, if you steal in secret, then you pay double. So it might even be a method of helping people out. The Ram says it's a Yisod right because you're not going to steal. There's no justification for stealing. The fact that you're going to pay later doesn't really make a difference. So Sajikon basically said this about God. God hits you and then gives you two kisses. So it's, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting point. I think we should understand where it comes from. It comes from a certain metaphysical basis What's well, basically a moral question. The metaphysical basis is, how is the world run? And the answer is, by justice. God is justice. It doesn't leave you room, maybe much room to maneuver. What it all comes down to in the end is that the theories of Ashkacha are, in the end, theories of what is God? Or at least, what is the... It's not a totally metaphysical question, but what is the metaphor that for us is the dominant one about God? And what this fourth opinion in Ramam says is that God is the judge. We act 
And above this world, above this stage, above this, this court, this playing field that's called the world, there's a referee. And when you break the rules, he, he blows the whistle. And if you play by the right rules, you get a point. That's, that's God's job in the world. And everything that we do, our religious lives, is centered on that figure, on that character, who we call God, which is a synonym for what Avram Avinu called Hashofet Kol Ha'aretz, the judge of all the land. Now for the Rambam, when the Rambam switches, which we'll see next week, the idea of Hashkacha from Mishpat, judgment, justice, to Chokhmah, he's not merely switching a theory of why does it rain on Tuesdays, but he's basically changing the image of God in your lives. God is not the judge of the world, God is the rationality of the world. Hu hachacham. God is the wise one. Obviously you can't be a good judge if you're not wise. And wisdom demands that you do justice. But the basic picture, who do I relate to? When I get up in the morning and I dive, I'm not worried about tzaddik v'ralo v'ashavat I'm not coming to complain about my lot or demand I want more rewards or, 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 or to try to avoid punishment. I'm just, I'm just going to go in the morning to daven. I, I'm, I'm searching for God. What are you searching for? And the Ramam consistently thought about Avuchim, and this, is no, this will be no exception. What a person is searching for is, is pure intellect. Is God Shuhu, shuhu Achacham. He's the Chokhmah. He's not merely the wise one. He's wisdom itself. And the opinion that the Ramam here is, is, is passing over and in rejecting is one that says that basically we look for God in the world of action. He's not an ideal wisdom. But he's he who, when we do actions, referees between us, between ourselves and ourselves, and ourselves and other people, and, and ourselves and, and morality. So God is an actor among the actors, but a very different role. We play the game, and God and God judges the game. We're going to see next week the Ramam's uh, own particular opinion in its two shades, what he calls Datoratenu Akdosha, the opinion of the Jews as opposed to the fourth opinion, which he doesn't describe to Sajagon, he describes it to the Mutakalam. And he says, in my particular opinion within that group, as well as uh, an opinion not quoted by the Rambam, it's later than the Rambam, but I think a very, very important one, the opinion of Avchastai Kreskas in Sefer or Hashem. So we're in the middle of Hashkacha now. The full import, I think, of what we've seen today will be understood better when we reach the conclusions next week. And until that time, call to this is Ezra Beck. You have been listening to the fifth installment in the weekly series on major issues in medieval Jewish philosophy. Now for today's Halacha Yomit, we've said Yishtabach, we've said Kaddish, we've said Baruch We now come to Kriyat Shema U'Birchotah. Kriyachma and the brachot that surround it. In Shacharit, there are two brachot before it and one bracha afterwards. Start with uh, Kriyachma itself. There's a machloket in the Gemara if Kriyachma is the Oraita or the Rabbanan. If it's the Oraita, then the Pasuk in the first Pasha of Kriyachma, Vishachacha Uvakumecha, is a mitzvah. Twice a day, b'shachvacha, when you're getting up, or uh, when you when you're going to sleep, or when you're getting up, to say this pasha, 
to say Hadvarim Ha'elu, these things, these words, the Pasha of Kriyachma. However, there's also an opinion in the Gemara that it's the Babanan, and Vayu Hadvarim Ha'ele, Vishinam Tamam, Shiftra Vaytecha, is referring not to this Pasha, but to Torah in general. One should learn Torah uh, in the morning and the and the night. And there's a machloket among the Rishonim how one should how one should paskin. There are, in fact, quite a number of Rishonim who paskin halacha lemaisa that Kriyachma is the Rabbanan. It's found in the Shuvah the Rash, in several of the Gaonim, uh, in Tosfos in apparently in one place. That's how it would appear that they hold that Kriyachma is is the Rabbanan. The obvious nafkamina. When we find a question whether something is the right or the Rabbanan, the obvious nafkamina is misafik what one should do. Safik the oraita the chumra. Safik the Rabbanan lekula. If one is not sure whether one read Kriyat Shema, yes or no, so if it's the oraita, you should read it again. Or you should read it, uh, even if it's again. And if it's the Rabbanan, then you don't have to do it again. The Gemara says. And Afrafalif in Bachot, Rabbi Raza says, Safai Kara Kriyachma Chozeva Kore. And the halacha is like Rabbi Raza. So that's why many Rishonim say that the halacha is that Kriyachma is the writer. If you have to read it again, if you're unsure whether you read it the first time, that implies that Kriyachma is, is the writer. That's the, the Psaka of the Rambam, it's the Psaka of the Shulchan Aruch. That's a psak that most people know because it's quoted that way in Shulchan Aruch. The explanation how it's possible to say that Allah the Maisa, Safek Kara, Safek Lo Kara, Choseva Kore, which you have to read again if you're not sure if you read. However, it's still the Rabbanan, is because there is another Girsa in the Gemara. The Shiltot, Shiltot Rabbi Chaigon, the Gaonic source, has a different uh, Girsa in the Gemara. What the reason is? Why is if one is unsure whether one read, does one have to read again? So in Agamur it says, because Kriyat Shema is the writer. But in the Shiltot it says, Mishum Kvod Malchut Shemayim. means even though it's the Rabbanan, but it's very important. It, it's talking about the kingdom and the kingship of, of, of God, of heaven. And so, I guess you could either say, why not do it again? Or it's just spiritually so important. It may not be a chiyuv, it may not be an obligation from the Torah, but it's still very, very essential and, and, and basic to Jewish life. And therefore, it may be Dwarbana, but it's inconceivable that you take a chance on not saying it. There's a similar halacha, according to Shulchan Aruch, that says that the, the, the Gemara says the women are exempt from Kriyat Shema because it's a mitzvah say shazman grama. There are certain times, and therefore, it's one of those mitzvot which women are not obligated in. But the Shulchan Aruch Paskins, Allah Chalamaisa, the women say Kriyat Shema because Yeshbo Kabbalat Omachot Shemaim. I mean, a Jew should accept the yoke of heaven. So, this was the Gisa of the Shiltot in the Gemara, that even though it's the Rabbanan, it's an exception to the rule. It's the Rabbanan, but it's so important that you shouldn't take a chance on missing it, and therefore you, you should say it again. So according to that, there is no nafkamina. This is not a nafkamina. There are other less obvious nafkaminot. We definitely paskin. Safek kara, safek lo kara, you read again. That doesn't only mean if you somehow forgot whether you read or not, which is a little bit, you know, hard to, hard to imagine how it could happen. Could happen. 
But there could be other spekot. So you read Kriyat Shema, and then later on you realize it might not have been this man. Too early in the morning, or, or too early in the evening. You, for one reason or another. So that's also Safek Kriyat Shema, Safek Lokara. If you're not sure whether the time was appropriate, because at certain times, we'll see this in another Halacha Yomit, that there are certain times when one has to say Kriyat Shema, now you realize that you may have made a mistake. So the is that you read it again. There are still two possibilities. The obvious possibility is that it's because it's the writer, it's a Mitzvah writer to read Kriyat Shema twice a day. However, there are some Yishonim who think that Kriyat Shema is the Rabbanan, but nonetheless, Misafek, you have to read it again anyhow. That's the opinion of the Shiltot. And apparently of all those other Rishonim who say it's Rabbanan, uh, the Rosh, the Tosfot, and several and several others. That's it for today. Tomorrow's Shiur will be the weekly mitzvah with Rabbi Yamin Tavori. And until then, this is Ezra Bek saying, Kol Tov, Kva'itim La Torah, wishing you well in your Torah learning. I repeat again, please spread this to your friends. We want to have, we really want to have a lot of, a lot of subscribers. That's why we're doing this. Call to speaking from Yeshivat Haretzion in Gush Etzion. Until tomorrow, this is KMTT. Ki Nitzion Tetzei Torah Udvar Hashem Yerushalayim.